Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in. Joined by James Fox, co-hosting with us today. We are also joined by a guest, Eric Longenhagen of Fangrass, lead prospect analyst. He's on Twitter, at Longenhagen. Eric, uh, I, you know, I'm a little jealous that you have your last name as your Twitter handle only. I mean, that's kind of valuable in my opinion. Something else that I believe is valuable is the fact that we're able to have this conversation with you today. Really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to share a lot of the insight. We have so much that we want to dive into. First, though, want to make sure you're doing okay. How are things? And uh, are you healthy? And uh, how has your work been affected uh, over, well, I guess, the last couple of months? Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks. Um, things are, are fine, all things considered, right? Like uh, relative to how someone might be doing it at a time like this. Um you know, Fangraphs, it's pretty public. It isn't doing super hot uh, without a baseball season, which seems pretty natural. Uh, and that's had an impact on the financial well-being of the site. So that's going on. People can go to Fangraphs.com. And uh, David Appleman posted a, a very recent update. It's very transparent about uh, subscriptions and how helpful they are and what we are looking to what kind of bar we're looking to clear as far as subscriptions goes to ensure that uh that Fangraphs comes out the other side of this so some of that stuff is kind of frustrating but yeah definitely I'm, I'm healthy uh the social isolation parts of it are uh difficult i'm a little naturally like more introverted and so i'm the gap between what my proclivity is during a time like the off season when there's no baseball and like what i'm doing now is probably smaller than it is for, for most people. And I live a, in a pretty suburban part of Tempe, Arizona. So I can like go for a jog when the sun goes down now, uh, since it's we're up over a hundred the last several days and projected to be for a while, which I'm sure will have a little bit of an impact on people's cabin fever here in, in the desert. But, uh, but yeah, thank you for asking. Things are generally going well, uh, compared to how they might be at this time. And, um, Staying home, social distancing, doing all the the CDC recommended stuff, and plan on doing it for the next couple of weeks. And we just had like literally before I hopped on with you guys, our governor gave a press conference where he extended our stay at home order through May fifteenth, and is going to take some of the restrictions off of some more businesses uh, over the next over that time between now and then. Uh, and like the details of which businesses it applies to and stuff are, you know, we're trying to toe a line, I think here between doing something with the, a little bit more with the economy while, uh, just heeding the warnings from the public health officials here in the state and from the mayors of our larger cities and one of our senators who asked our governor, please like extend the stay at home order two more weeks, which is what he did. So, um, couple more weeks from anything really firing up here in Arizona, which I think is, is fine and smart uh, for at least that chunk of time still. So uh, things are getting a little bit better as far as our local case rates, Um, but they are still pretty variable day to day. Some days, two days in a row, a lot of times um, we'll have down ticks in, in testing and positive tests and uh, death rates. And then, we'll kind of have another spike and it really makes our curve here in the state of Arizona. Uh, It's, you know, it's flat ish, but um, I don't know, you know, we'll see what happens over the, uh, over the long haul. A huge part of what has happened here is the Navajo nation uh, 
is really like the primary hotspot for um, for cases. It's folks who were uh, contracted it at, uh, at least is what's been reported in the Arizona Republic. Like mostly it seems contracted it at a religious ceremony that first weekend in March uh, when things really started to clearly be bad and it seemed like our lives were going to change. So uh, that is that is an overwhelming chunk of of what has happened in Arizona has happened to the, to the Navajo folks and um, like all at just one religious ceremony. So uh, having a bunch of people in a bar or a restaurant to know that uh, it's that contagious uh, right now is maybe not the best. So glad that uh, unlike some other States that we're, we're going to hit the brakes for another couple of weeks. And so that makes me feel a little bit better about two weeks from now, maybe going out and doing something uh, responsibly. So fingers crossed that over the next couple of weeks, things uh, keep ticking up. How about you guys? How are things going for you two? Yeah, how about it? Uh, a lot there. First, I want to mention, yes, yeah, please, you know, if, if you're able to the listener out there, support Fangraphs. Everybody works really hard to, to put together a quality product. Obviously, you you know, as a baseball fan, you go to Fangraphs and check out everything that they have to provide on, on prospect write-ups and, and statistics and unique opinion pieces and editorials. You know, they, they work. So if you're able, you know, think about that. And yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the economic struggle. People like here in Illinois, it's sort of the same deal. Our governor extended the stay-at-home order. And, you know, now across the country, really, people are feeling the effects of being out of work uh, as a result of the pandemic, of course. So it's affecting a lot of things. And, you know, it's concerning for sure whether or not we feel safe enough to return prematurely, if we want to call it that, or at the appropriate time in which, you know, the CDC feel like it's, it's right. There's a it's a slippery slope here because you just you don't know. Um, there's a lot of unknown here. So yeah, uh, James and I I think we're doing okay. If I could speak for him, James as a teacher has to deal with teaching from home, um, but he enjoys the isolation I assume. Yeah, so I mean I'm you know I'm obviously eight to one. I'm pretty much on call like teaching students. Um, I teach junior high, uh, special ed, but yeah, I mean, it's going fine. I try not to complain too much. I got it a lot better than a lot of people do. So, you know, reading, reading books, um, you know, your, your new great book, Eric, and then, you know, watching a lot of TV and stuff with, with just me and my wife. So we're good. All good here. And that's something that I wanted to bring up that James just said is the future value. You and Kylie McDaniel work together and, you know, James and I were lucky enough to, to get a copy and we read a large portion of it. I haven't finished it yet, but there's a lot of interesting uh, sort of tidbits on the perspective of what really happens within the idea of scouting and how it affects everything in, in evaluating players and what organizations do, their approach, and this and that. So I recommend Future Value for those listening as well. So support Fangraphs and support Future Value. Um, with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about something in the book that caught both James and I, our attention is that you, you, you painted a, a little bit of a ominous picture for the future of baseball scouts in a general sense. The White Sox have a pretty large scouting department, specifically on the amateur side. So I guess my question is, how can that affect that organization themselves moving forward? That's a, that's a good question. It's one that there's probably not a great answer for just yet now that the amateur department is under different guidance, right? Um, so how that shakes out over the next couple of years will probably tell us a lot about, uh, the plans for the future as far as amateur scouting is concerned for the White Sox. Uh, now that Nick Hostetler is seemingly uninvolved, uh, that there's just 
different people at the at the reins or have, have who have more say in how things how business is conducted so uh we'll have to wait and see it's not really a thing that um it's a thing i'm more apt to recognize after there's been some time rather than try to anticipate uh but i do think yes like tech video and expenses are all sort of working against scouting as a as a growth industry you know it is just sort of uh, especially as the corporate types gain more and more control of teams orgs like the pirates uh who aren't apt to spend any money when they get told by a prospective gm during an interview hey uh if you change the way you scout to doing it mostly on video and with technology you can drastically reduce your scouting staff travel expenses that they incur per diem all the anything benefits are and we can replicate scouting to some extent you know 80 percent as good as having a giant staff of scouts but at like 20% 20% of the cost or whatever. I don't, you know, those numbers aren't exactly right. Uh, and so this is the type of thing, especially now that there might not be as much baseball this summer that owners sort of have an excuse to do. Now, some teams like the Padres have said, we're not going to furlough any scouts. Others have committed to paying them into the summer to some degree next six to eight weeks. Uh, and then others like the Pirates, aren't like haven't said what they're going to do. And there are rumors that they might start uh, hemorrhaging bodies. So uh, as far as the White Sox are concerned, I would assume that they are likely to trend in the direction that the rest of the industry is, which is toward one that utilizes video tech, fewer scouts and more in office analysis. Um, But they are not, I wouldn't anticipate that they're one of the first teams to start doing it. Nor would I anticipate that if they were to ever do it, that they would ever do it to the to the extreme that, say, like the previous Astros regime had. Uh, I just think that the org is too, you know, right on up to Jerry Reinsdorf is just sort of blue blooded and uh, will will be loath to uh, to to bow to, you know, that type of thinking if only because it flies in the face of the way that they romanticize baseball, which personally I think is fine because that's how I think about it too. Yeah, I would agree with that. So it's a good segue for my next question. You know, the White Sox this offseason hired Ben Hansen as their biomechanical engineer this offseason. They also hired, well, they didn't hire, but they moved Everett Tiford and then Ben Broussard as directors of pitching and hitting respectively, while also promoting Ryan Johansson to the assistant director of hitting you know, they're an organization that's kind of been behind the curve, like on hires like this in general, but it's good to see them finally making changes on the player development side under Chris Getz. Um, what are your thoughts on these moves? And then what kind of impact can a guy like Ben Hansen have in that role? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the two, two White Sox prospects lists ago, uh, I had said something to the effect in the org summary that, hey, this org hasn't really been very good at developing players, especially pitchers. And some of it was that the org in the draft room was fond of the types of players who aren't dev friendly. It's a lot of bigger body dudes where the cement is kind of dry on what it is they are. And, uh, but yeah, so this, this new group and it's, it's tough, right? Because the driveline concepts, a lot of the biomechanical research that uh, has improved 
industry-wide, the knowledge and application of, of, of it um, has gotten markedly better over the last half decade. But whenever you bring in someone, even uh, if they're certified or clearly have um, demonstrable knowledge of these concepts, how it's going to play in the room and how uh, intelligently it's applied to players on a, like a prospect by prospect basis is pretty variable. Uh, there are some of the orgs in Arizona where it's clear what they're trying to do, that they're trying to apply some of these concepts, but they're doing it in a way that I think is suboptimal. So like an example of this over time uh, has been the angels where a lot of their guys are undergoing swing changes, like in perpetuity, several, several of them sometimes. And already when they're 17, 18, 19 years old, before they've really, before they really feel comfortable playing procedural baseball. Uh, and so like they're thinking through their swings or their delivery when what they really should be thinking about is just executing and what it is they should be trying to do in that moment, given the situation. And uh, so like, again, the concepts I think are sound. I'm encouraged by what the White Sox, that they're open-minded about this type of stuff and both by the results that we saw in 2019. Uh, Luis Robert had a swing change that was part of this breakout, right? The, the attack angle of his swing was was altered uh, in, a, in a relevant and positive way. And then Jonathan Stever got better. And like there were just more examples of guys getting better in 2019 than there had been in the years leading up to that, which I think is, is also a positive sign. I think um, the value of player dev can to some degree be quantified. I think the folks at driveline are trying to, um, you know, they have incentive to, to quantify it so they can tell teams like, Hey, here's how much you should be paying us to do this. Um, so, uh, but, but I do think you can kind of say, all right, Hey, this was a seventh rounder who we turned into a middle reliever, the type who would typically go in round three or four. And you can really kind of quantify how much value you've added to that, uh, to that player's outcome via, via dev. And so, um, yeah, I think that, things are moving in the right direction for, uh, for your guys. Uh, it's certainly the last 12 months, I think are evidence of that. Something else that you alluded to, um, in the scouting department is obviously, you know, Nick Hostetler, you know, is doing, I guess, like an unspecified role on the, on the pro side now. And Mike Shirley has taken his place on the amateur side. Um, so he talked earlier, I think in February at Soxfest, obviously before the nation was shut down by a pandemic and, you know, he, he kind of mentioned, he indicated that the club would likely be more prep focused um, in the draft under his leadership. We've heard the stocks linked to names like Jared Kelly this off season. We've heard, you know, Ed Howard's like the local kid who obviously mm. didn't play any baseball. Um, you know, like in the first round, it's obviously most teams go best player available, but does like a trend um, to being more prep focused at least make sense for them at this stage of where they are. I think probably, yeah. I think that it just makes sense to be more open-minded to it early on than the uh, the club has seemed to be in the draft the last couple of years. Last year was, was pretty different, right? But the way that they've gone... It was varied, yeah, last year right, was. With Dahlquist and Thompson. But the way that they have approached it fairly recently is to, to do the college thing early and then kind of spread 300K-ish bonuses out to some high schoolers on day three. And like, at, that's a, that's at least a strategy, right? Like it wasn't as if they were totally ignoring high school players. And you could argue that high school players, especially high school pitchers uh, are so, so risky that, that dumping one, 2 million into those guys 
constantly is a good way to end up with one or two viable big league arms of some sort. Maybe one of them is a star and then a bunch of busts. Like it's just, even if you just look at the last 2017 draft, 2018 draft, high schoolers uh, a year out of their draft, two years out of their draft, it's stocked down for most of them. Uh, It is just a risky demo. So I understand why they've been hesitant to wade in those waters. I think publicly you should always say that, yeah, we're, yeah, sure. We're open to it. Absolutely. If for no other reason than to say that publicly as misinformation, um, I would, I wouldn't want the other teams in baseball going, eh, you know, long and Higgins running that team and they never take a high school kid. So don't worry. Like that's just not information that the, uh, your opponents should have about how you're going about this. So, um, in this year's draft, it is just so chock full of good college guys that I don't know if anyone is going to have a draft at the end that looks like, oh, they clearly were focused on high school guys. Uh, and I don't, you know, I'm trying to, struggling to think of other than the Jake Berger pick, which I just was not a big fan of because I was so scared of Berger athletically. Um, there's not a time when I've thought like, oh, they should do something else. They shouldn't take Carlos Rodon or they shouldn't take Andrew Vaughn. They should take a high school kid with that pick. I, you know, but, um, but it is like the Connor Pilkingtons of the world where I'm like, eh, what is this guy really? He's 88, 91, uh, and was young for the class, but didn't have any body projection. Like those are, those are the types of college guys where it's like, how, how is this not only exciting, but, uh, but actually going to play, how is this guy actually going to have a big league role? And I think projecting on high schoolers in those rounds in two, three, four, uh, where they're signable is much more exciting than your generic uh, Friday or Saturday night SEC arm who sits 90-92. Some pretty interesting information there, Eric, and I'm excited to get your opinion on some specific prospects that we have in line for you in a little bit. But first, before that, you know, I'm curious, we've been talking about this at Future Sox, and I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, about how the minor league season is going to be managed this year. It's it's hard to foresee the minor league season, you know, taking place in any capacity, you know, like in a realistic form where they're traveling from affiliate to affiliate and they're getting their leagues in. Uh, I think there's it's just a lot more involved with the travel and, and teams and players and everything like that that runs the risk, of course, of uh, endangering these players. However, it, it feels to us that it's important that these players somehow get on the field. What's the most practical way for, for minor leaguers to maintain, you know, their development? Because if they sit out a full year, you know, who knows what can happen to them and what happens to their affiliates? Yeah, the there's certainly try to think about this across the entire player population and it's pretty difficult to say how a year off would impact everyone in some sort of uh like with a blanket statement. There are certain individuals who it would be devastating, players who were slated to be on the 40-man this offseason, prove one way or another during the 2020 season that they belonged on the 40-man. So it's it's a rough year for those guys if, in fact, there's no form of minor league baseball. And I do think there will be something, I think, from a practical standpoint, that you have to have the rest of the guys on your 40-man and a few others staying tuned up on the backfields in, you know, various locations uh, here in Arizona, Texas, Florida, wherever that there are uh, games played, 
just in the event of injury, like you sh- you need to have a couple guys uh, ready to go. So there's that part of it too. It doesn't make sense to have those guys stay home and then report once they're needed. Uh, it, it makes a lot more sense to have those guys in place already. Um, so there's that part of it. The affiliate thing, yeah, that's tough. Um, again, every affiliate is different. Some affiliates are owned by a person or a group of people who are insanely wealthy. They own a bunch of minor league teams at once. And some of them are lowly mom and pops who have indie ball quality facilities uh, and they're struggling to get by. And then, of course, a lot of them are probably just going to go away as a result of this, which is what MLB wanted anyway. But the pandemic is uh, agitating things economically in such a way that makes that easier for them to, to, to do uh, since a lot of the orgs, the minor league affiliates they wanted to, to contract are the types who are uh, hardest hit from this anyway, types with the uh, worst facilities. So, uh, yeah, like as far as minor league baseball contraction is happening, uh, that seems highly likely and uh, to be enacted in the ways that we've all heard rumored. And then as far as player development is concerned, I do think that we'll have something in the fall, some sort of uh, like the Arizona Fall League, basically something like that. I do think it'll be longer than normal. Uh, maybe it'll even have more teams or something like that. But I think that they'll find a way of getting reps for a subset of the minors that the teams have to basically decide who they who they want to try to develop at some point this year and who they don't. Obviously, you frequent the backfields in Arizona quite a bit. So, I mean, if that is that, you know, not to go too long-winded, but is, is that feasible, you think? Like if one of these plans works, like can they just be housed at, at minor league facilities and just play games back there? Yeah, I think the assuming that MLB has protocols in place to ensure that willing players, and that uh, adjective is important, that willing players subject to surveillance – so that they're not, you know, like, look, if I were 20 years old and a professional athlete, I'd want to go to Tempe or Scottsdale on a Friday night too, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, like they have to be willing, accept, willingly uh, accepting of surveillance, constant testing. We have to have the surplus of testing that morally uh, allows us to test all these baseball players while there are, you know, sick people who, who actually need them. So that's that should be in place. Like assuming yada, 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 all of that stuff gets done right, then from a facilities perspective, yeah, I do think Arizona is is well equipped uh, to house their third or their half or whatever it may be of minor leaguers who are staying hot in the event that they need to uh, play big league games. And so like, and again, yeah, you mentioned not to get too long-winded, but they're between all the spring training facilities, all of the backfields at those spring training facilities, what Arizona State uh, the University of Arizona does, the Kino Sports Complex uh, in Tucson. Grand Canyon University has an excellent quality facility. These are all places that would absolutely be able to to house a uh, minor league game totally confidently um, without, without anyone in the stands. And I think, you know, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the number of facilities is quite as, as great as it is here uh, in Arizona. And in Florida, they're obviously a greater distance apart, uh, but there are as many, if not more, because of all the schools across Florida that have uh, quality facilities. So I think like as far as playing on fields uh, are concerned that, yeah, the the Florida, Texas, Arizona plan leaves enough 
room uh, to have players uh, in these facilities playing games where we're talking about big league teams and then like some, you know, every org has a minor league team of guys who are just ready in case of injury. Uh, but it's, um, again, like all the other following CDC guidelines, making sure that people aren't put in harm's way in these metropolitan areas where all of these players and team staffs are suddenly uh, arriving. Like those are more important, but yeah, as the stuff that I feel comfortable uh, s- saying that I feel expert about is our, our facilities here in Arizona. And there are so many of them that, yeah, I think that there'd be enough to play uh, minor league games in the backfields. So I'm going to shift a little bit just to the international side. Something I agree with you on like completely that you mentioned in your write-up at Fangraphs today. Um, I just want to know if like for our listeners, can you explain, I guess, why the White Sox would benefit from an international draft potentially? Marco Patti seems well-regarded um, even like outside the organization, but the, they've always been very risk-averse for whatever reason. Like in to play in like that sixteen year old marketplace, I think Mike Rodolfo's like one point five million dollar bonus is still the biggest they've given to you know like a sixteen year old um, in that market. And then I guess, do you get any sense of like why that is and why that's the strategy that they employ? It was always intimated to me that it was like Mr. Reinsdorf who is the quote unquote problem there. Um, you know, with the way other teams operate in the international space, they're agreeing to verbal deals with prospects when they are 14, 15 years old. And then when those prospects are finally eligible to sign at 16, uh, they ink those deals. And the White Sox just haven't been as willing to play in that space during those two years where they have a verbal handshake deal with someone for whatever reason. Um, and instead, they end up with a lot of Cubans who hit the market late who teams didn't anticipate would hit, hit the market. And so therefore like the White Sox are often one of those last couple teams who have pool space to use on players uh, late. But yeah, I don't, I understand uh, the moral objection to it. Like it is kind of a weird thing to talk to a, an athletic trainer in Latin America about the 13, 14, 15 year old he trains and uh, want to hire him to work for your multi-billion dollar uh, corporation. So it is kind of strange, and um, but yeah, they are they are also getting beat, you know. Like if you don't play in this space at all, then the best players in baseball who are Latin American, which is a lot of them, they they have no zero chance of uh, playing for the White Sox. It's it's as if if you had five million ish dollars worth of pool space to use every year on lottery tickets and chose like not to to get any of them. Uh, like you're not going to win the lottery. So uh, it's hard to find Wander Franco when you're, when you're not willing to say, Hey, you know what? Put, let's put two and a half, three million into this kid just because, and a lot of teams, you know, like look at the Padres class from a couple years ago. Luis, Luis Almanzar is not very good. Justin Lopez isn't very good. Uh, Gabriel Arias is still kind of a work in progress, but like Adrian Morihone's in the big leagues. Michelle Baez is in the big leagues. Uh, so, uh, Patino is pretty good. Like, you know, so it's just, it is a, a space that I think that they should consider playing in more often. Uh, this, what they're, what they've done, you know, Luis Robert is one freak thing that happened that can't happen anymore because the signing rules have changed. Um, and so, you know, you can't point to that as an example of, 
of them doing this. Um, nor can you use his 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 bonus really, which is just totally inflates uh, what it is they've done over there uh, as any kind of of evidence. It just has been kind of scant. I'd like to focus on a couple of guys. Well, one that the White Sox are signing, and then a couple others who they're they're heavily targeting. They're signing Cuban righty Norhe Vera uh, during the upcoming period. And they've also been rumored on other Cuban players like Oscar Colas and Yoelki Cespedes. Where would you slot Norhe Vera in your rankings currently? And where, or I should say, which player between Cespedes and Colas would you prioritize if you're the White Sox? Good question. Yeah, Vera. Vera's interesting. There's um, Josh Herzenberg, who now works for uh, a team in the KBO, the Lot Giants. And um, he was he used to live in the New York area and saw Vera work out in New Jersey. There's an article on Fangraphs not long before uh, he reportedly agreed to a deal with the White Sox. Uh, so that's um, your best look from a scouting perspective on on what Vera is. You know, as as a guy his age with this type of stuff, he'd probably slot in there on either side of Thompson and Dahlquist. Um, either as one of the last 40 plus future value prospects or one of the higher forties. Um, and it really just depends on like when he signs, uh, what, what does it look like from a developmental standpoint between now and how long it's going to take for this guy to get on a mound is probably part of the consideration there. Uh, but yeah, like that's where he belongs. It's a projectable teenage pitching prospect with arm strength and a breaking ball. So he'd be right there with Dalquist and Thompson on the on the orb list and then as far as the other guys what i've got on colas is very mixed he's he's an interesting curiosity he does have power considering how uh short he is he's short but not small he's one of those types of bodies um so he's he's mildly interesting but the track record of the older cuban guys is not all that good and as an industry i think we tend to to get too hyped about julio pablo martinez and uh, Lord is Guriel, right? Like these guys are just kind of okay. Um, they don't like belong on a top 100 list before they've played any games over here. So I've seen some of Yoelki in person. I really don't believe in his field to hit. He is an impressive, like physical specimen. And he has like his brother, he's got like a 70 or 80 arm. Um, but yeah, he's he, where I just am not comfortable with the bat the ball skills. He'd probably be in the 35 future value tier, which is like the honorable mention guys at the bottom of the list or somewhere in that 35 plus group with the DJ Gladney's of the world. Really good stuff there, Eric. Uh, appreciate that. And here's something that I'd like to bring up and you know, you wrote about this today and it was released the White Sox top 38 prospects uh, over on Fangraphs.com, and there's a couple things that caught my attention, and I'm sure we'll get to them in a sec. But first, let me let me start off by uh, asking you about Luis Roberts' skill. So, can you explain why some of his swing changes, like you mentioned earlier in the in the episode, made you feel better about Luis Robert, his projections, and where he stands as a developmental prospect currently? Yeah, there was just, and maybe some of this was just totally related to the thumb injury from the year before. Uh, but because of how frequently he was hurt early on in his career over here, uh, I just, you know, saw him a ton on the backfields during extended or, or whenever. And then the the change in 
attack angle or bat path or however you want to term it uh, between that year and then last year was pretty stark. I thought it allowed him to uh, pull and lift the ball more. He had sort of an inside-out swing in certain parts of the zone, the way like Delman Young did. Uh, I think it's it's a problem that a lot of guys with with big raw power who underperform tend to have, where their inside outing balls on the inner half uh, just because of the way their their hands work, and that wasn't happening anymore. Um, and so it just seemed to me that he was able to. Uh, pull and just sort of spray with lift more readily last year than than the year before. Uh, although I'm struggling to visualize in my mind's eye like the, the characteristics, the specific characteristics of the swing uh, that are different. But I do think that yeah, there was it made me feel good about the power playing in games to the rate that it was being pretty real. Uh, that it wasn't just some weird thing that had to do with the baseball uh, or smaller sample size that this guy was different physically from a mechanical standpoint. And that that was part of what, uh, you know, just made me feel more solid about stuffing him pretty good. Although, uh, you know, I think other people are just as, if not more enthused about him as a prospect, but uh, cause I just think there are still some chase issues there that might be kind of a problem, but as from a swing perspective, the fact that he made that adjustment is very encouraging. Yeah, that's fair. And we've, we've heard that from uh, multiple experts as well related to the chase uh, aspect of Luis Roberts' game. But we're, of course, very excited to have him in the organization. We think he'll translate well. Somebody that I'd also like to mention uh, that you have as a 40-plus future value grade in Micah Adolfo, he is in his age 23 season, and, of course, he's been hampered with multiple arm injuries that set him back over the course of what was a almost an entire full season. And then when he came back, he struggled, and even this year he struggled. So, I'm curious your take on the evaluation of Micker Adolfo because it seemed to me as he returned to game action and he saw live pitching, he had he had issues with his approach and it seemed like just uh, his pitch recognition and the pitches that he was swinging at just weren't where they need to be if that makes any sense. So what's your what's your take on Micker Adolfo at this point? Yeah, he sifting through him and German Mercedes and Zach Collins and. I knew they all kind of belong close to one another. They're close to the big, big leagues. Their profiles are, are relatively similar. Uh, and then the thing that's started to separate them is how and why they have the issues that they do. And Adolfo's, you're right. Like the injuries over the last couple of years have made it. So his stat line on Fangraphs player page shows that this guy's had like a 10 or 11% walk rate over the last couple of years at his last few stops. That's a take above average rate. That's pretty solid. But for his entire career leading up to that point, uh, he had been very swing happy, like walk rates down in the 4 5 6% area. That's uh, like concerning red flag territory, especially for someone who, you know, just generally has some swing and miss about the way they, they're, you know, just in the, in the swing. So uh, there's a, like a sort of a multiplicative effect there. He does have some of the most raw power in the minor leagues period. Um, the track man data that I sourced to put on the board over at Fangraphs has uh, Adolfo with 95 average exit velo in, you know, admittedly limited plate appearances last year because of uh, yet another injury. So with the three of them, Mercedes Collins and Adolfo, I felt less uh, confident and more instability in Adolfo's approach. The numbers for the last couple of years, I'm not as willing to trust because it was over such a small sample due to all those injuries. 
uh, although he has the most raw power of those three, I just feel less good about him getting to it. Uh, that power is dependent on the hit tool. And so I think it's going to be tough for him to profile. He might get squeezed off of that roster relatively soon because there are just so many types of guys uh, like him already on the 40 man. Uh, and then, yeah, Yermin and Collins, I thought from an approach and contact perspective, were just much more stable, although they project to play a similar role on a team. Eric, one of the other things you had in your prospect rankings that, you know, that dropped today, something you mentioned in there was that the White Sox were known to kind of kill spin. And, you know, you, you had been, I guess, critical of like some of their pitching development in the past, like you had mentioned, I guess, can you just um, explain what you meant by that? And then could possibly some of these changes in player development be aimed to change some of that? Well, yeah. So in this case, this is a a positive thing because it has to do with killing spin on the changeups in the system, which seems to be something that the org is pretty good at. Uh, a lot of the guys, some of which are in the honorable mention section, uh, or even just sort of in my internal kind of half on my radar uh, spreadsheet, like working in the background here, are guys with uh, changeup spin rates that are on the change or split finger line, you know, which is just a really good sign for um, what's being done there with grips and, and releases. So the goal, yes, like spin rate on a breaking ball, theoretically good. Uh, lower spin rates on changeups are, are better. So the org seems to be very good at having guys whose changeup spin rates are like in the 14, 1500 range, which if you just look at a track man readout, you're not really sure if that's a straight change or if that's a splitter, like that's sort of uh, living in that, in that realm, which I think is interesting and, and pretty good. It's a, it's a consistent trait throughout uh, a lot of the system to have guys with uh, change-ups or splits like that that are heavy and, and have sync. And then, you know, one of the most controversial prospects in the White Sox system is Nick Madrigal. You, you've always seemingly been a fan. Uh, what do you like about his profile? And then I guess whenever this season gets started, uh, do you think he should be in the big, big leagues fairly quickly after the season starts? I do, yeah. I, yeah, I wrote uh, the... Hey, should a five foot seven second baseman go, go first in the draft piece, like in February of his draft year? Um, he is the lowest swing strike rate in minor league baseball, and that type of guy is without pedigree. It's it sneaks up on us, right? David Fletcher's been a good big leaguer for the last couple of years. Luis Arias had a good three quarters of last season. Like the, these are similar players who have elite contact ability. They don't have much power, but they play a premium position or can play several. Uh, in Fletcher's case, it's several. In Arias's case, it's a, he plays a lousy second base. Uh, but these types of players are still, are still valuable. Does it cap Madrigal's ceiling to some degree because he's unlikely to hit with any power? Yeah. You know, he, he's not Alfonso Soriano. But um, – a, t a consistent two to three war player who plays plus or better defense at second base and uh, has one of the higher uh, like balls in play rates in all of pro baseball. Like I think this guy's going to be pretty good. And I totally understand why other people are not on this dude, right? Like um, from an exit velocity standpoint, and again, all this stuff is on, uh, the board over at Fangraphs, which is, as far as I know, the only place to get this stuff at a comprehensive level. Um, Madrigal's exit velos are low. They're in, like I said, David Fletcher territory. They're in Nicky Lopez territory. They are in Jose Iglesias territory. 
And if you look at Jose Iglesias and say this was one of the better defensive shortstops of this century, and he is also like a plus-to-plus-plus contact type of hitter, but he's just so, so weak that the quality of contact has basically made him uh, a 45 future value type of guy. Like if I knew what Jose Iglesias was going to be throughout throughout, uh, the duration of his career, then I would put a 45 future value on him as a prospect. Um, So I can see how you point to that guy and say, well, look, like what's stopping Madrigal from, how is he different than this guy? Uh, And I just think it's just such an elite rate of contact that he is up in that Fletcher Arias like type of guy who we've uh, historically as an industry been like, yeah, he's too small. He doesn't have power. And then he just turns out he's a two to three war player every year, which is like super duper valuable. Uh, that's a 55 or 60 on the scale. So that's why I like magic. Uh, and also some of it is totally, but like it's bias. Like I'll say all this stuff and these are why I've made my decisions. And I hope that it supports the conclusions I've drawn on these players well enough that people keep coming to my website, but like I've been wrong before and I'll be wrong again. And some of it is that I like magic because he's fun as hell to watch play baseball. And I've been watching him since he was uh, a high school kid and was too small to be good uh, at that point in time. And, you know, teams had million dollar evaluations on, on Madrigal as a high schooler and uh, others thought he sucked. And then he went to Oregon state and was awesome for three years. And still like, you know, how much longer is this guy going to have to do stuff before we realize, eh, no, he's just kind of freaky. Uh, and is probably going to be quite good. And that's that's the camp I'm in at this point. Yeah, Magical continues to represent a unique anomaly in the game. Uh, a little kind of redundant there, calling him a unique anomaly. But it, it seems like that's the case in what the White Sox have in Magical. A lot of that was really interesting stuff, Eric. Something that I found that caught my attention as well on your list here, or there were three players bunched together. Uh, relatively young. Well, actually, two of the three are young, and then the other one has zero major league experience in the States, or professional experience period in the States, and that's Benjamin Bailey, Jose Rodriguez, and then Yolbert Sanchez, as I mentioned. Bailey the Panamanian, Rodriguez out of the Dominican. Bailey's turning 19, uh, Rodriguez just turned 19, and Yolbert is 23. So we're talking these three players in your list were bunched together. Now, you don't have to go in depth about all three. I'm just curious why they were put where they were together. Sure. Um, Yeah. I think Rodriguez and Bailey, because of what's going on with their feel for contact relative to the other players in their age group in the system, uh, Ramos, Gladney, Bryce Bush, uh, Yannabel Laureano, who repeated the DSL, both Rodriguez and Bailey, in my opinion, their, their field of contact is a cut above the rest of those guys, which I think gives them a better chance of playing a big league role of any kind and certainly a better chance of them uh, being big league regulars. Sanchez is where he is on the list because of his theoretical timeline to the big leagues. I didn't, I didn't source on him uh, reports from the DSL on Sanchez. He was so much older than everybody in the DSL that I just found that, that would be kind of useless. So his value is where it was when uh, he was on our amateur list. He's just seen as a high probability utility type um, and someone who should be able to move pretty quickly. But again, Alfredo Rodriguez with the Reds was that type of guy and just turns out that he couldn't hit. Um, I don't think we know whether or not Sanchez can, uh, can hit or not yet. He needs to face age-appropriate competition. So um, 
But yeah, he's based on the amateur reports. He was a high probability utility type. So the way those guys are stacked is um, is to reflect that Rodriguez uh, and uh, and Bailey are in that tier just because I think they have a better chance of being regulars than the the other same age guys in the system. Eric, the last one I have for you, and thanks a lot for joining us today and doing this. We really appreciate it. Um, one of the guys that made big strides in the system last year and somebody that our readers asked us about a ton was Jonathan Stever. You know, after being a fifth-round pick out of Indiana a couple of years ago, he really took off um, with Winston-Salem. Last year, it, it did seem like you had um, some reservations, like in your write-up, just that he could end up in relief long-term. And he obviously had an issue uh, with health in spring training that we really didn't get much clarity on. Um, so what does he need to do to stay in the rotation long-term? The Having clear demarcation between – his, his slider and his curveball. I think the curveball is already there, already really good. Slider consistency has not quite been there. I think that the org and Stever have both said that uh, publicly. So whether it's a slider or him finding a better changeup, I just think there needs to be a better third pitch to clearly put him past uh, what, you know, can at times just look like a reliever. And then, yeah, the injury, he was, he was on the 45, 40-plus 40 line, uh, for me, and then the injury stuff from the spring uh, made it much easier to kind of push him down toward the rest of the guys where there's pen risk, uh, or at least more of it. And so, yeah, it's I don't know a whole lot beyond what you guys do, uh, what's out there publicly as far as it being, uh, what was it, forearm or elbow soreness. Um, yeah, and for, forearm's always scary, obviously, yeah. and then everything just kind of gets shut down. So, yeah, we don't we don't really know either. Yeah, so the the velo uptick last year certainly positive, although you know you can draw a line between the velo uptick and the injury this spring, I suppose, if you really want to. But yeah, as of right now, I think it's clearly there's a two pitch mix that plays in the big leagues right now in the, the fastball at the new velocity and his curveball. But still trying to find that slider and change it before I'm I'm into the, to the degree that I think others are. Uh, or the degree that I think is fine to be in if you want to extrapolate on the adjustments that he's made. But at his age, I'm a little less apt to do that. I think uh, Cody Heyer, who I have in the same future value tier, who is almost certainly a, a reliever, you know, he's behind Stever because Stever has a, a better chance of starting. But from a which guy has the two best pitches of this group, uh, Stever or Heyer, I think that that's very close. Um, and so, yeah, from a who who could do a thing in the big leagues right now perspective like those guys belong in the same tier for sure last one eric you've been generous with your time and this has been an incredibly insightful interview again we appreciate it um so for me this is going back to future value uh and the book that's released uh with you and kylie mcdaniel can you just share with our listeners a story that stood out to you uh maybe within the book or throughout your experience covering you know, these amateurs and scouting and writing for fan graphs that you'd like to share. Um, and also feel free to plug anything that you're working on currently. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, the story in, in and my answer to this has changed a couple times over the course of, um, of doing, writing the book and talking about it. But Chris Kuselek's story in the, uh, I think it's the 11th chapter. Everybody wants to work in baseball, but nobody wants to die is just one of bravery and perseverance 
the type of the type of thing that um, like sheer force of will that enables someone to succeed at kind of anything really. Uh, so Chris's story in the book is really remarkable. Uh, and then as far as the scouting stories go, it's just, it's such a shame that we, we won't have this anymore. Technology is so pervasive that if you, if you're a good baseball prospect, you can film yourself with your phone and put it on social media and chances are someone will see it and, uh, like you if you're really good. Whereas in the past, the ability to actually hide good, good players in uh, crowded areas like SoCal where there's just like so much baseball that it's hard for teams to wrap their arms around it entirely. Like those stories are incredible. Uh, the Howie Kendrick story in the book, the JT Realmuto story in the book where these players were more or less successfully hidden and teams were like, you know, taking part in, in antics uh, kind of going out of their way to, to try to keep it that way and prevent other teams from knowing that they were on uh, those players. I love that stuff, that type of gamesmanship. And it is kind of bad for the player, right? Because uh, as someone who's, you know, I, look, I want the, the players in the labor force of baseball to do well. And it's just better for them when all 30 teams are acutely aware of how good they are and there's that kind of market for their talent. But it is kind of fun, the, the spy espionage parts of, of scouting, especially on the amateur side and internationally where the rules and regulations are just lax and harder to enforce. Uh, and so the stuff like that in the book is absolutely my, my favorite, as well as uh, Chris's story of, of perseverance. And, and his, his story is still so new and young because he is, uh, and his career is really, as a scout has really just begun. But it, unfortunately, it's occurring at a time when uh, having a career as a scout is just going to become harder. And some of the stuff, one of the other things I'll mention um, is a story that was cut from the book. There are uh, people in, in Arizona, you know, young, young women who are trying to get into scouting or want to be in front offices. And there are older women who uh, at, back in their day were attempting to do that type of thing as well. And obviously the way gender relations in our country have changed over that time have enabled, have better enabled young women uh, opportunities to uh, join scouting uh, departments and front offices are still not nearly enough, but much, much better now than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and so like the juxtaposition between this window for people uh, that is closed uh, due to gender discrimination and then uh, that has come open uh, now for the near future for young women interested in baseball, that, that was a story that was like more or less cut from the book because there just wasn't enough to it. Uh, and some of the participants were just so young that to put any sort of professional expectations on them for, uh, to work in baseball just seemed kind of wrongheaded to me. Uh, but like that story too, I think is an interesting one, maybe one for a future book that, um, you know, women have an interesting perspective on baseball, one that would be valuable in the draft room and just haven't really had the opportunity to share it yet. Yeah, like we've had Kim Contreras, obviously, has contributed with us for a long time. So it was good to see, you know, her mentioned in the book. Um, you you brought up the Real Muto story. And, you know, that was that was probably my favorite story in the book until I read the Jameis Winston stuff. And then that instantly became my favorite. So, Yeah, Jameis is quite... In a, in a not so positive way, obviously. But yeah, so not surprised. Yeah, no one was surprised. No one is surprised by the Jameis Winston thing. That's... we Kylie and I talked about... You know, some of the stuff in the book about uh, Winston and, you know, A.J. Preller stuff, 
the although I think the Preller chapter is fair. There there are three thousand words that mostly I wrote about um, AJ in the book. You know, that talk about kind of how ruthless he is, which to most mostly I admire candidly. Uh, but he you know he has done some stuff that he's been punished for uh, correctly in my opinion. But like, uh, but yeah, the Winston stuff. When Kylie and I were discussing, like, hey, should we should we put this type of thing in here? Do you think this is kosher to put in? The, one of our litmus tests for that type of uh, thing was, is anyone going to be surprised by this? Is this really going to be revelatory to anyone to talk about any of this stuff? Uh, and with Winston, the the answer, the feedback we got on that was like universally no. Everyone in the baseball industry, when they were vetting Jameis as a prospect at one point, was just like, eh, pass on this guy. Like he's talented, but he's going to go way better in football than he is for us. And based on a, what was likely middle middle relief profile that Winston had in college. Like it just isn't worth it. So yeah, Jameis is an interesting character who um, his development as a person is going to be as interesting to watch as his uh, under like Drew Brees and Sean Payton in New Orleans as uh, his development as a passer will be. That is Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs. Check out his book along with Kylie McDaniel, Future Value. It's worth it. If you're a baseball fan, you'll love it. Guaranteed. Eric, thanks so much for the time. This was a lot of fun. Don't be a stranger. Hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully we, we get to talk because Yerman Mercedes is making me look smart in uh, a couple months. But yeah, I appreciate <laughs> you guys uh, taking the time to have me on. And I hope you and your listeners stay well and that uh, things shake out in such a way that we will have baseball at some point this summer and we can all coalesce around that together. It's going to feel so, so good. But um, I, I'm looking at this as if we're, you know, at halftime and I'm, I'm mentally gearing myself up to do uh, the very strangely passive work to, to make our world uh, get to a point where we can feel good about having some ball. And I know I look forward to that, to that day. Absolutely. Well said. Appreciate the kind words as well. Eric Longenhagen can be found on Twitter at Longenhagen. I'm jealous of his Twitter handle. He's the Fangraphs lead prospect analyst. Go to Fangraphs.com if you're willing and able they will, of course, very much appreciate the support. They do a lot for us in the baseball community, so we can potentially help them out if we can. For James Fox and our guest, Eric Longenhang, and my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Future Sox podcast. Check out our entire library on anchor.fm slash Future Sox. We're also on iTunes and Spotify. Check us out there as well. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you all next time.